0: final book of your Bible. hope you brought your Bibles today. You're going to put them to good use. Book of Revelation. Final book there. And I'll tell you it's uh, good to be back with you and certainly enjoyed a a good Christmas time with the family. And I thought as we are starting this year, let's do so with the end in mind. Now in January of 1961, there was an event that... uh, it was rather surprising. This is just a few days before John F. Kennedy uh, took was inaugurated as the president of the United States. Just a few days before that event, uh, he actually invited Billy Graham to come and spend a day with him in Key Biscayne, Florida. Now, this was uh, rather surprising because, first of all, uh, John F. Kennedy had a pretty well-known dislike for Billy Graham, and uh, top that off. Uh, Kennedy was really not interested in spiritual matters. He had other extracurricular activities that he seemed to find uh, gotten his time engaged. We'll not dive into that. So a uh, couple of days before the inauguration, have Billy Graham spend a day with him was rather surprising. They went golfing at Key Biscayne, and then uh, on their return back from their golf trip in this white convertible Cadillac as they are making their way Back to their hotel, just Billy Graham and Kennedy. Kennedy pulls over to the side of the road, turns the car off, and he looks Billy Graham in the eye and he asks him this, Billy, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth one day? Billy Graham said, yes, Mr. President, I certainly do. And listen to what Kennedy said. Then why do I hear so little about it? The return of Jesus Christ, we could say, is probably the best kept secret in the world. No one is talking about it. Uh, It's never in the newspaper, never in the news. When you're checking the web out and you're checking to find out what's going on, you never hear about it. It's never referenced. In fact, most Christians don't reference or even think about the fact that Christ is returning. And that's rather shocking and surprising because the Bible gives so much attention to it you and I, we need to have a very strong working knowledge of what theologians call eschatology, end times. Let me just give you a few reasons why. Um, You need to have a good knowledge of the end times because it's a dominant theme in the Bible. Do you know how much of your Bible is prophecy? A quarter of it, one quarter. And the whole idea of the return of Christ gets a lot of press. In the Old Testament, there are over 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. There are over 300 references to the Lord's return specifically. That's about one out of every 30 verses in the uh, 26 book, 27 books of the New Testament. 23 of them give the focus of the return of Christ a lot of press. It's a major theme. So you can kind of think of it this way. For every one verse in the Bible that talks about Christ's first coming, the celebration of the Incarnation, i.e. Christmas, there are eight references to the return of Christ. So if you just look at proportion and prominence, you need to know about eschatology and times. Let me give you another reason why you need to know. It helps us interpret and apply the Bible correctly. I'm of the persuasion that if you don't have an understanding of the return of Christ you're always going to come up short when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And then let me give you a third reason. It motivates godly living. If you want to live with holiness, a life set apart to God, if you are going to be concerned about the lost, like we just got done singing, break my heart for what breaks yours, you've got to have an understanding of how this all ends. That's one of the major reasons why you need to study the book of Revelation. And if you're going to be doing the work of the master of making disciples, you have to have a full understanding and a good understanding of why he thinks that's so important. And yet, uh, when it comes to like the book of Revelation, if you're picking some devotional time, I think I will spent a little bit time in the Bible, chances are you don't pick the book of Revelation. It's kind of like Winston Churchill said of the Soviet Union. He said the Soviet Union, it is like a riddle wrapped in a mystery that is inside an enigma, okay? That's how I refer to the Soviet Union. It's totally confusing and perplexing. And that's a lot of people, when they come to the book of Revelation, like, man, there's just all these images and mystery and symbols, and I, I just don't get it. In fact, a lot of Christians they are like, you know. Why am I going to be concerned about the beast in Revelation 13? I mean, think of the tyrant that I have to work, through, work with on Monday through Friday, you know? And then I've got all my pressures and things are broken in my house and I've got relationship issues and I've barely made it through Christmas and I don't have any money and finances tight. I've got enough problems here. Why well, do I need to even understand the tribulation? Well, I've given you three great reasons why. And if the book of Revelation is like this huge mystery, it's like a book that you just never get to, well, today that's all going to change. Guess what? I'm taking you all and we're going to walk out those doors and I'm going to load you up and we're going to take a bus and we're going to go to the McGregor Executive Airport and we've got an Airbus A380 that's sitting there waiting for us. I'm going to load you all up on there and I'm going to strap you in and we're going to take an overview look at this book. Now, if some of you are flying and you're all concerned about the flight food and what you're going to be eating, I'll tell you what, when we get done here in about 35 minutes, you will find at the back of the plane that we've got food for you, Okay. And uh, it's Panera, and we got real good coffee. It's much better than the stuff you have to buy on the plane, so I don't want you to worry about that if that's a big focus of your life. But I do want you to have an overview understanding of this book. Now, if you're looking for the theme of the book of Revelation, it is this, that the book of Revelation demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord over all and that he is to be Lord over all of us. If you need the theme of this book, if someone should ask you, it's simply this that Jesus is Lord. It's the theme of the book, and God wants it to be the theme of our life, that Jesus is our Lord. So I want to give you an overview of the book of Revelation. And it begins by establishing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church and the universe. What we're going to do now are pre-flight preparations. We're going to get you ready. You have to understand chapter 1 if the book is going to make sense. And so you begin chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, from that word revelation, that's where we get our word apocalypse, okay? When I say the word apocalypse, you're thinking, oh, man, things blowing up, end of the world, all sorts of bad stuff happening. Actually, apocaly- apocalypsis actually means to reveal or to unveil. And this whole book is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ, And notice what he says, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Notice who the book is written to. Did you see it? Bondservants. Bondservants of Christ. If you don't see yourself as a servant of Christ And a bond servant is one who has completely assigned all of his rights over to his master, then this book probably doesn't draw a lot of attention from you. In fact, if you haven't settled that issue yet of who is the Lord of your life, then you're at times kind of playing the mini-god rule. You think you're in charge, but there is great freedom to know that we are completely given over to the Lord, that he is the Lord of our life. And when we do, the scriptures like come alive because this is the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. So it's written to the bond servants about what is about to take place. And notice what he says, verse two, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that they saw. Now, I am fully aware that there are all sorts of different views on how to interpret the book of Revelation, okay? I know that. But from my years of study, I would like to humbly submit to you uh, my understanding of this book, what I believe this is is unveiling. Now, let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of the end times. This is just a thumbnail sketch. Uh, You would find at the back there we have more notes and we actually have this chart uh, back there. But just so you have just kind of a brief overview, we are in the church age it is the church on the earth and that's kind of fitting in with revelation one through three the next major event on god's prophetic calendar it is what is called the rapture it is god actually removing his saints from the earth this is the next great event it's actually spelled out in great detail for Thessalonians 4 13 through 18 where god is going to remove his saints because why God has not destined his people for wrath, but for obtaining salvation in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. So God pulls out his saints. That, what they're going to be doing, they're going to then be with the Lord. There is going to be the judgment seat of Christ, where it's not a judgment on whether or not you stay in heaven, because if you know Christ, you're united with him forever, eternally. But it is a judgment in terms of reward and responsibility in God's future kingdom reign where christ will reign on the earth and in eternity now that's going to take place for seven years while that's taking place in heaven on the earth is this seven year period of tribulation you see that that corresponds with chapters 6 through 18 of the book of revelation and then the great event of history where christ returns it is the marriage of the lamb christ returns to the earth He slays his enemies, and then he establishes his thousand-year reign or his millennial kingdom on the earth, Revelation chapter 20. After this thousand-year reign, Satan is going to be loosed. He is going to have one final rebellion. God is going to completely destroy that rebellion and assign Satan to the lake of fire. Then you have the final judgment where God judges every unbeliever. And then you have the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. That's it in a nutshell. So let me then just kind of walk you through this book. You need to know something. You will be blessed. There is going to be great joy, spiritual riches that come by studying this book. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things. You hear it it has the idea that you understand it and you process it, but you heed it. It literally means that you obey, you follow through, you, you listen and you understand and you apply. Blessed are those who heed it. Now, you and I need to know about this book. You see, Reve- Revelation is like this. It has been referred to as the grand central station of the Bible. Because all of the trains come into this final book. So all the promises and, and events that take place, covenants that are given, all the way back in Genesis, they find their fulfillment in the book of Revelation. So for instance, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a nation, and you are going to be an eternal blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Messiah is going to come through the line of Abraham. Now, in order for that to be a complete fulfillment, you have to have a literal understanding of the book of Revelation. God hasn't given Israel the full scope of the land that he has actually described, but he does so in the book of Revelation. And so, you know, what happened is God established this covenant with the people of Israel, and God said, you walk with me and you obey me, and man, yet blessings abundant But if you disregard me or you put me on the shelf or you get into the practice, you kind of go through the motions, but you don't really love me and like me, guess what? I will bring judgment upon you. And one of the judgments is I'm going to haul you off into captivity. I will do that. And he did. 586 B.C., God finally had it, and he actually took all of his people, for the most part, and hauled them off into Babylon, 586 B.C., and while the people are there, one of the foremost questions in their mind is God's still going to be faithful to us because we've been so wicked and so rebellious and now we don't even have a country. We don't have a land and we're all slaves here in Babylon. God gave four visions to his prophet Daniel who was in Babylon. Those visions spoke of what is to come specifically when you look at the vision that you find in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 he explicitly said that Messiah is going to come he says there's going to be a 490 year period for 483 years from the time that Jerusalem is was decreed to be rebuilt 483 years, three years later Messiah will come And that is exactly what happened. Jesus makes his triumphal entry at exactly 483 years from the decree in which God said to to rebuild Jerusalem and when actually that took place. But there is also in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, you see that there is a break between the 483 years and the final seven-year period. There is this huge break, and that break, that gap, is the, is the time of the Gentiles where God is going to be bringing in people who, for the most part, are non-Jewish Gentiles, you and me, and bring them into the kingdom. And at some point, the stopwatch is going to continue, and with that, the saints are going to be taken away, the rapture, and there's going to be a final seven-year period of judgment and tribulation, and then the eternal kingdom this millennial kingdom is going to come. So that is what is going to take place. And so he says, it's written, John chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And this is, this is pretty amazing. The book of Revelation is the only book in which the Trinity actually addresses those who read it. You have the Father, in verse 4, to him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, seven speaking of completion, speaking of the Holy Spirit and all his fullness, who are before his throne. And you want to see one of the finest verses on, the, on redemption. Look at verse 5. You might want to underline it or put a mark by it. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And, and look at this to him who loves us present tense always ongoing loves us god through christ wants us to grow and be strengthened with the reality that he loves us unconditionally to him who loves us and notice this released us from our sins by his blood we ha- there is a once-for-all event that takes place on the cross where God emancipates His people from their sins because Christ bears our sins in His body and He does it through the shedding of His blood. He pays the penalty of God's wrath for our sin. And notice this, verse 6, And He has made us to be a kingdom priest His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us as those who have access to Him at all times and as priests... We actually speak of God's goodness, of his grace, and his gospel. We represent God to the people. And we do so because he loves us and he's released us from our sins. And then he says, verse 7, this is what this book is about. Behold. He is coming with the clouds. This is speaking directly of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where you see the Messiah coming in the Shekinah glory, in these clouds of glory. He says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. And even those who pierced Him This is taken from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it speaks to the fact that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. This isn't the four Roman soldiers that actually physically crucified him. This is speaking of the Jewish people who saw that he was put to death. They will then see him. They will look upon him whom they pierced and see that this is the promised one of the Old Testament. And they will mourn. Notice what it says. And and they they will look on him whom they pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. And then Jesus speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Almighty One. I see the beginning from the end. I am the eternal God, and I can speak with full authority about what is to come. And so we have it. Let me tell you what takes place. Verse 9. John writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you're thinking like, hmm, Patmos sounds like kind of a nice place. Maybe it was the Bahamas or something like that. Actually not. Patmos was the Alcatraz of the ancient world. And what takes place under the reign of Domitian, he is the Roman emperor, he took this whole idea of being God and having people worship him really seriously. So seriously that it was required of all Romans and all citizens of the empire to once a year bow down, worship him, and call him the Lord God. Most folks didn't have a problem with that. You know, is that what I need to do? All right, I can do it. But if you're a Christian and you truly know the Lord and the King of kings, that is a major problem. And Christians wouldn't bow. And if you think you're God, how are you going to handle that? How do you think Domitian's going to handle that? Well, he turned up the heat, and a massive persecution took place. The last living apostle, John, he made him an example. And even though John is an old man at this point, in 95, 96 AD, John is then sent to Patmos in exile. He works at a mine. And so this is when it takes place. In 95, 96 AD, all of the church fathers all support this date as to when this event takes place of this revelation. He says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I wouldn't bow down. I believe." And friends, get ready. In our country, one day you're going to have to stand. You're going to have to figure out Who's God of your life, and you're going to bow down, or are you going to know my allegiance with the Christ? And he says, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. It's all of a sudden, this loud voice comes blurring through. It's verse 11, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he lists those seven churches. And he, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which were referring to these seven churches. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe. If you want to see Christ in His glory, reaching to the feet and girded across His chest with a golden sash, and His head and His hair were like white, like white wool, like snow, and His eyes we like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. His word literally pierces and cuts. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. In verse seventeen, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is all, you know, these. People that are writing about their kids going to heaven or they've taken a little trip to heaven and playing around with cheeses and bubbles and all that sort of stuff. That's all nonsense. Because if you really saw the living Lord, you respond where your body literally falls to the ground if you see him for who he is. And he fell on his, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And look at this verse 17. And he placed his right hand on me. You want to see the love of the Savior? You know, John was one of his closest disciples. Jesus places his pierced right hand on him saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades and this is what I want you to do. I want you to write. Verse 19, therefore write the things which you have seen, Revelation chapter 1, I want you to write these things that you've seen and the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, about the churches and the things which will take place after these things. I want you to write what is about to take place. So now we're ascending. In chapters 2 and 3, what you find, these are seven letters to the seven churches that he lists in verse 11. You need to know that God knows intimately the details of each person and of the spiritual health of each church. Like he knows the condition of Fellowship Bible Church. And so you actually know that he deeply cares about the spiritual vitality of every church. He has these letters written specifically to each one of these churches. He he commends them, he corrects them, he counsels them. The first one is to the church at Ephesus. John had actually been serving there as a pastor for 25 years before he was sent into exile. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he said, you're doing a lot of great things, church at Ephesus, You've just got one major problem. You've left your first love, verse 4. That's why I want you to repent. I want you to return. And I want you to remember the deeds that you've done at first. The book uh, continues, chapter 2, verse 8, where you have the church at Smyrna. This is one of two churches that received no condemnation. And they're told, keep your perseverance. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You stay faithful. The next church is the church at Pergamum, and that begins in verse 12 in chapter 2. They lost their purity morally. The next one is the church at Thyatira, verse 18. They have lost their parameters doctrinally. They were doctrinally confused. Does that matter to Jesus if you actually have good theology? Absolutely. Any questions? Just read that letter. That ought to fix matters for you. And then chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, is the church at Sardis. They had completely lost their purpose. They didn't even know why they existed. Jesus addresses it. Then you come to the church at Philadelphia. This is also the other church that receives no condemnation. This church hadn't lost its passion. It was moving forward. And Jesus says something that's very important. Chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He's saying... I'm going to keep you from it. I'm not going to keep you through it. I'm not going to keep you in it. I'm going to keep you from it. I'm going to take you away. And again, this is a reference here to this, this snatching way, this rapture, where he says to the church of Philadelphia, you are consistent and you're trusting me. I'm going to take you out of this world. And then the final letter is the, it's, it's one that, unless you want to be deeply convicted, maybe you want to avoid it. It's the letter to the church at Laodicea. This is the church were that become so self-sufficient that they were spiritually complacent. You need to know something. Greed and God both can't be lord of your life. Only one. Who's it going to be? And Jesus addresses that issue. And every one of these letters ends with the same phrase. Look at verse 22 in chapter 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to me. Can you hear me? If you can hear me, heed these things. Listen and let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, now we are airborne. When you hit chapters 4 and 5, you're going to see Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven. You want to see what does it look like in heaven? Well, you've got a glimpse of it. Chapters 4 and 5. You don't have to imagine. You don't have to create things. You just need to read your Bible. Because in chapters 4 and 5, you actually see This vision of heaven. And it's from this point forward that John is going to be taken up, and it's from this point that he is going to actually view all these divine transactions. He's looking through the quarter of time, through the halls of history, into the canyon of eternity, and he's seeing the events that are going to take place because Jesus wants him to record these things so that his people will know. That will not neglect the book, but will actually know with certainty what is to come. And I'll tell you this you're going to see tremendous worship where they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They bow down. They worship him. And that is because this, we worship God to the degree that we see his worth. If you don't really see the value of Jesus, you're not too enamored with him, that all explains why there's not a whole lot of worship in your life. On the other hand, when you see his greatness, the goodness of his salvation, his grace, his power, his strength, his love, it leads to tremendous worship. In this life, and especially in the life to come. The greater our vision of God, the greater our worship of him will be. Now, there is a problem in heaven, though, and that problem is this. There is this scroll, and it has seven seals. It is the title deed of the earth, and there is no one found who is worthy enough to to open it. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 5, verse 4, and there is this weeping that is taking place. But there is one. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is also the lamb that was sacrificed for his people. Sound familiar? Who is it? It's Jesus. It is the Son of God. He is the lone one who is worthy to receive the scroll because the earth belongs to him. And so he receives the scroll and you find that there's just amazing, unparalleled worship as they're worshiping around the throne and they're coming to him and they're praising him because he has this book. And I mean, you can actually see it, verse 12 in chapter 5, worthy is the lamb who, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's tremendous worship oriented to Christ because he alone is is the worthy one. And he receives the scroll because remember like in Psalm 2, the father said, he said, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession and you will break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. I will give you the earth and your enemies you will crush. And that is what takes place in the book of Revelation Now, when you come to chapter 6, chapter 6 through 20, we are going to see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the future. We're now at cruising altitude. We've hit about 35,000 feet. Now, you'll remember that Christ is actually upholding justice in the universe. You break laws here on the earth, what? There's a penalty, right? You break God's laws and how he has divinely set up for how you and I relate to him there is a penalty because he is, a, he is both a God of love and he's a God of justice. It is his character, and so he's going, to be a judge, he's going to bring judgment to sin and to all those who rebel against him and will not have a savior. And that all starts taking place in chapter 6. You start that seeing this with these breaking of these seals. Now, what you're going to find here, these six seals kind of cover the, the seven-year period. At the seventh seal, when that's broken, there it introduces seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet then, when it's sounded, then releases, gives us the picture of these seven bowls of wrath, which are going to happen in rather fast, staccato-like fashion. And so that's what you're going to see as you're going through the book of Revelation. So seals, that seventh seal, trumpet, bowls. And these are not read so much as that John sees them acted out, what is actually going to take place, and he tries to convey this. Now, what you're going to find as you keep moving through the book of Revelation from here on out is that this directly parallels what Jesus said the end times will look like in Matthew chapter 24. So you have the breaking of the first seal, chapter 6, verse 1. The Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, verse 2, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so you see this is the coming of the Antichrist, but he is not going to win battles, but he is actually going to have like a diplomatic victory, and people are going to start aligning themselves with him. That's why he has a bow but no arrows, and this is a picture of warfare. That's what a bow is, a symbol of war. And then you have the fighting, the second seal. You're going to have fighting throughout the earth, and the third, famine in the world, the fourth seal. There's going to be a fatality of, the pe- of a fourth of the people, chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. And then you have, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, this breaking of the fifth seal, you see these faithful martyrs who are praying for God's justice. Then the sixth seal, there's going to be fear of of the Lord's wrath and the coming cosmic chaos. And so you've got this seven-year period. Now, the first three and a half years, it's going to be relatively peaceful. In fact, the Antichrist is going to come off looking pretty good. He is getting people to align with him. And one of the things that he will do is that he will become Israel's protector. Does Israel need a protector? Absolutely. Especially right now. And the Antichrist is going to fill the bill. And for three and a half years, this is going to be all right. And he is going to look like the one guy who would really bring peace around here and unite everybody, Arabs, Jews, Gentiles, But after three and a half years, at this midpoint, there is going to be a complete change where the Antichrist no longer will be Israel's protector but becomes their persecutor. And the final three and a half years are referred to in the Bible as the great tribulation or the day of the Lord. And it is going to be tremendously bad for those who are on the earth. And so you've got this question at the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 17. And it says, who is able to stand? Who can actually go through this? Who is going to make it? And the answer to that question is found in chapter 7. You're going to find that there are going to be 144,000 Jews. They're going to function somewhat like evangelists. They're Jewish people who are trusting in Christ as Messiah. And then you're going to find, beginning in verse 9, that there is a multitude of Gentiles, of people that will come to trust Christ during this tribulation period. Now, that takes us to chapters 8 and 9. This is where you have these trumpet judgments that are going to take place, okay? And they're going to sound out and they're going to come in successive fashion and it is going to be terrible. But I want you to see how deep depravity goes. You would think that if God is bringing judgment upon the earth that people are just going to cry out in repentance and say, I I get it, you're God and I'm not. I want you to see how deep depravity goes. Look at chapter 9. Look at how it ends, 20 and 21. The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues... Notice this, they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They're still going to have their own false gods, whether it be materialism or whether they've they've got some sort of little demonic little God thing going and they call it their God. God sees it one way. I'm God, everything else is not. You either repent or you face the judgment they won't repent. In fact, look at verse 21. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. They still will not repent. Now, when you come to chapter 10, you're going to have like this little interlude where John is, is, he's totally wore out at this point, having to see these things and to write them down. He actually then has told to eat the scroll, and at first it tastes sweet because it's the word of God, but then because of what it's revealing, it makes him sick. And he is told, you need to keep writing about how this all ends. And so and you also then see in chapter 11 that God gives two final witnesses in the end times, two prophets. These two prophets are going to warn of all the judgments of the, that come and plead with people to accept the eternal gospel and to believe in Christ. And the world is going to hate them. In fact, they're going to try to kill them, but they will never be successful because God protects them. And that is until at the end of the three and a half years where they are, excuse me, actually successful in killing them and they lay their dead in the street for three and a half days. But at the end of this, even though there's going to be like a party. People are going to be giving gifts to each other. They're going to be celebrating this bad news. They're going to leave these two dead prophets' bodies laying in the street. Then three and a half days later, look at verse 11. The breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them and they heard a loud voice from heaven. Every TV station has got this in tune. Everybody is seeing this. They hear this loud voice, come up here. And then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and there's gonna, you're going to see that 7,000 people are actually killed in this earthquake. And this is what you need to know. The end has come. Look at verse 15. You might want to underline it. Then the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud vo- loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He's coming back, and he's going to receive the world unto his own. Now, when you come to chapter 12, now we're going to start seeing a picture of this great war between Satan and God. And it's done in such a way as to leave you an impression but it also gives you insight. It's kind of like the imagery that you might see when you're looking at a picture, and you see it, and if you see a powerful picture, it actually leaves an impression upon you, and you're moved by it. Well, that's what chapter 12 does. It is it gives you this details of Satan's war with God. When you come to chapter 13, this is a staggering chapter. You're going to find chapter 13 is the ultimate deception. Satan can't be God. So what does he do? He seeks to imitate him. In chapter 13 you're going to find out that there is a satanic trinity. Chapter 13 verse 1, the dragon speaking of the devil himself, he is standing on the sand of the seashore. The devil actually poses and is as an imitation of God the Father. But he is going to bring up his own quote unquote Messiah the false messiah, the Antichrist, in verse uh, 1 and chapter 13. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He brings his own false messiah to the world, and he is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist has what is called the false prophet. You can find him in verse 11. He actually comes from the earth. And he is like the counterfeit Holy Spirit. He is always seeking to bring people to worship the Antichrist. And so you have this ultimate deception that is taking place and there's something that you're probably familiar with there is what is referred to as the mark of the beast you heard about that okay well you want to find out what that is chapter 13 verse 18 here is wisdom let him understand calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man and the number is 666 and so they can't buy food they can't actually function without this mark on their hand or on their forehead and they'll literally be marked out as belonging to the Antichrist. What it is is an imitation of those who are the servants of God who are anointed and they are marked out and sealed as God's people, okay? You see that in the book of Revelation. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are marked out as one of God's. Well, the Antichrist is going to mark out those who belong to him it is the ultimate deception and there is going to be a world that is going to go along with it well chapter 14 in the book of revelation is the ultimate reality if you want to see god for who he really is you see him chapter 14 you see that he's redeeming his people you see that he is the god who reveals the eternal gospel look at chapter 14 verse 6 and another angel flying in midheaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth God is always giving the eternal gospel to people that they will trust in Him and Him alone. He's the creator of the world and of the universe, and He's calling people to know Him, to live as they're created, to trust Him, to live with Him. But you're also going to find that God is the one who's going to recompense His enemies, and you find that at the end of chapter 14, verses 9 through 20. That takes us then to chapter 15. This is it. It's over. All of a sudden, the chronology is going to pick back up. Chapter 15 introduces these seven bowls of wrath. Chapter 16, actually then, are the final judgments that happen at the end of this seven-year tribulation, and they are poured out. Literally, God's wrath is finally, completely poured out on the earth. You'll find in verses 13 through 16, there is a reference to Armageddon, and I'm sure you've heard about Armageddon. It literally is Har Megiddo. It speaks, har, It means hill in Hebrew or mount. It is the Mount of Megiddo. This is the plain. What is going to happen is that even though the Antichrist has risen to world power and supremacy, there are other leaders in the world that aren't going to like this so much and they're going to decide to try to take him on. And they are going to gather together. You're actually going to find in chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, that this is demonically driven and they are going to gather to fight him. But what has happened is like Antichrist is then going to have all his enemies in one spot, a great place to annihilate him. But hold on. You're going to find out what kind of annihilation, what kind of war is going to take place. With this, then there is just then this another break for you to see the wickedness of the world. It's referred to as Babylon, and you'll find it in chapter 17 and 18. Babylon is both a city and a system. Chapter 17 talks about its religious and political aspects. Chapter 18 talks about its commercial aspect. It's about materialism, but it's got a sense of spirituality, and you're going to find its end. And so because it is so important that you understand why God is bringing judgment to the earth, there is these scenes given in chapters 17 and 18 where you can actually see just that. Well, that brings us to what we could call probably the most climactic, striking chapter of the Bible, the most dramatic event in human history is recorded in Revelation 19. Every Christian ought to be familiar with this chapter because this is when Christ returns. It is the final capstone to the death and the resurrection of Christ. He promised, I am coming back, right? Chapter 19 is his return. He comes back and with him are coming all of the saints, all of his people. And you actually see that they're riding on white horses in Revelation 19, verse 14. And if you're like, whoa, time out. Man, I'm not so good at riding horses. You know, last time I did that, I, got, I fall off. And, uh, you know, I'm from Texas. And if I'm a Texas Christian believer, I'm going to make everybody look bad if I fall off that horse, right? Let me tell you, you don't have to worry about that. He's got it all under control. You're not going to fall off, but you are coming back. And if you feel like, I'm not much of a fighter. I couldn't ride a horse and hold a sword at the same time. You don't have to worry about it. Because we're coming back with the King of Kings. And he literally, you, you can read it in verse 15. From his mouth comes that sharp sword. He literally, with his word, just like he killed 185,000 Assyrians, he literally will destroy his enemies that are gathered at Armageddon. They were gathered to take on the Antichrist. And God has now all of his enemies all together and he brings final destruction to them. And so you see him coming back, beast and the false prophet. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 20, then, is the millennial kingdom, this 1,000-year reign of Christ. The Satan is bound for a 1,000 years. If you're like, how do we know that it's a 1,000 years? All you have to do is count. Six times in seven verses, in Revelation 23, 1, one through 7, he says, a 1,000 years, 1,000 years. There is a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And it's going to be pretty good, and we're going to be here. We will be reigning and ruling. To the degree that you're responsible in this life, the degree you're going to have responsibilities in the kingdom to come. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. And they're going to be offspring, children of believing parents who entered into the millennial kingdom that will not believe. And when Satan is released, they will buy into the deception to rebel. And there'll be one final rebellion. And, and Jesus will address that, and it'll be done satan will be cast into lake of fire and then the most sobering passage of the bible is chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 it's actually very difficult to read i find it so because you know why i got friends and family members who do not know christ they're not trusting in him and you want to find out the end you really want to know you read it he spelled it out there are going to be two books open the book of life Those who know Christ, their name is written in the book of life and the book of people's deeds. Everything that you've done is recorded and people are going to be judged according to their deeds and your deeds are going to tell that you really didn't trust him and you're going to be judged. And like it says, they are thrown into the lake of fire. They will face eternal torment. This is serious stuff, friends well this is a a serious event here we finally come to our final destination revelation chapter 21 through 22 5 jesus christ is the lord of the new heaven and earth and in this we see what eternity will really be like there is this new jerusalem remember jesus said in john 14 listen i'm going to go and i'm going to prepare a place for you remember him saying that this is what he's prepared There is a new heavens and a new earth and we're going to be with Him and it is going to be glorious. In fact, if you you can see in 22, like in verse 3, there's no longer to be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will have no need for a light or a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. There are no tears in heaven, but there is unending joy in the presence of the very one that we're worshiping today. And that is the new heavens and the new earth. And let me tell you, if our life is in Christ, then heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, this is our home. Well, that takes us now back to earth Chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, the book closes this way. God makes his final appeal to humanity. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the present. God's final words to a fallen world are this. You come to me. The most essential question of life is, will we come to Christ? And so we find the ending, the conclusion, the final word to this fallen world, is come. The book ends where we must begin. Look at 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take water of life without cost, you come. Are you sick of this world? Do you really want true fulfillment and to know the living God? You absolutely must come to Christ. And how it must be is this, that the Lord over all is to be the lord over all of me and when christ is the lord over all of you and me it changes our priorities our perspective It changes what we do with our finances, how we raise our kids, what we do with our time. We go out and share our faith. Why? Because we know the end and we know that we've been commissioned with this to go to make disciples of all the nations. We're involved in discipleship. We want people to grow deep in Christ. We're not playing church because we are the church and Christ is our Lord. And everything changes because of that reality. And so I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Joyful Christian, wrote, about the value of being heavenly-minded. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some moderns think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. These are good words to remember as we live in light of the return of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of your word, how you have hold back the curtains of heaven that we might see the sovereignty of Christ, the reality of how bad we need the gospel. And if there's someone who has not trusted Him right now, would they turn from sin and trust Christ alone that they would believe? And Father, for all of us who know Him, may we live in light of His return. May we think regularly of the goodness, the greatness, and the power, and the return of our Savior. Amen. Lord Jesus, come. Amen.